Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Justin Baldoni. Justin is an actor, director, producer, author, entrepreneur, and changemaker. He came to prominence playing Raphael on Jane the Virgin and is working tirelessly to help men be their better selves. His new book, Man Enough, Undefining My Masculinity, is now available. Big boys don't cry. Suck it up. Shut up and rub some dirt on it. Stop crying before I give you something to cry about. These are just a few of the phrases that contribute to a disease in our society. Over time, I noticed a parallel between the roles I would play as a man, both on screen and off. Little boys do not like butterflies. And my heart went out to that little boy. He was this beautiful, open-hearted little being already being fed made-up stories about how he should be as a man. Taking men out of this constricting box that doesn't just hurt the women and gender nonconforming and trans people, um, but also we hurt ourselves. And I didn't realize how much I was suffering. Hey, I'm Justin Baldoni, and I believe that we need to undefine masculinity. Because if we men are the problem, then that also means that we men are the solution. Sorry, not sorry. Hi, Justin. How are you doing today? Hi, Alyssa. I'm doing good. I've had an emotional morning, but aside from that, I'm doing pretty good. Anything you want to share? My daughter started first grade today. My son is in pre-K, but I can't believe I have a first grader. So I just collapsed after I dropped her off at school. My daughter is also a first grader, and she started first grade two weeks ago. And then my son turned 10 years old today, which I can't even believe. Today? <laughs> today. Happy birthday to you then. Thank you. Thank you. Because I think that's an important thing. Yeah. He was two hours old as of right now. 10 years ago, which is so wild how just time flies. It's like that saying about being a parent, the the days are long, but the years are short. I love the one that says, it's the only time you feel nostalgia for the present. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's really good. You miss it. As you're experiencing it, you are literally missing it. Yeah. And I got to tell you, my cousin has been here with his three-month-old baby for the past week. And... 
it was the first time that I realized, you know, because I had really bad postpartum anxiety. And so as I, you know, I've been letting Jesse and his wife go out to dinner. And as I've been taking care of this little three month old, I realized and I called my therapist right away. I was like, wait a minute. I was good at this. (laughs) And James was like, yeah. I said, I didn't think I was good at this while I was doing it. While I was in the process of having a newborn, I was so terrified the whole time and anxious and I had crazy OCD and all of it, literally all of it, that I didn't realize what a caretaker I was. And that makes me a little sad that I didn't appreciate that I was really good at that. You're appreciating it now. And I think that's something that's really important for moms to hear is that most moms feel like they're failing. They feel like they're terrible at it. I have this conversation with my wife. In fact, today, as we were both holding hands and crying, walking into the parking lot, I looked at her and I just said, baby, you're doing such a good job. And she just broke down because she says, I feel like I'm not. And I said, did you look at our daughter? Did you look at how excited she was and how much she hugged us and how confident she felt going in? I'm like, that's all you. So I wish that there was like a button we could press that all the moms in the world could just for a moment know how appreciative the world is of them. I was watching TikToks last night at I don't know, three in the morning when I couldn't sleep, which happens quite often. And on my For You page, this child psychiatrist came on and he said, just a reminder for all you parents, you are literally raising these kids to be able to let them go. And every day they're going to be breaking away from you a little bit more. And I was like, what do you mean? Of course, that's right. You want to raise them to have all the tools to be productive members of society and wonderful humans and people. But it's just to love something that much with the notion that there's going to come a time where they're going to be on their own. Part of that love and part of loving them is having to let them fly. That's the thing that gets me all the time. It's detachment. It seems like a cruel joke. And you wait your whole life for it and you prepare for it. You think you're all ready. And it's like living with your heart outside of your body. That's exactly what it is. It's your heart existing outside of your body. It's like the most vulnerable fear you could imagine because it comes from a place of love and a place of honor and beauty. And it's just so fucking terrifying. Uh, It's so terrifying. (laughs) I'm trying to find this quote and the prophet. He says, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children, as living arrows, are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. We're the vessels for them to fulfill their own destiny and their own 
journey. And when you think about that, when you think about like your kids going on the journey of a lifetime and how painful like my journey was. Oh, yeah. I just want to protect them. And obviously that doesn't help them, but it's just a really scary time. We're talking about this and we have such privilege to be financially secure and not worry about that aspect of it. But there are way too many parents that go to bed not knowing how they're going to feed their kids the next day. And imagine how those parents feel. And what are we doing to help those parents feel like they're not failing? Or not even knowing if their kids will make it home from school because of the color of their skin. It is interesting, though, that the great irony is that the more we hold on to anything in life and try to protect it, the more we hurt the thing that we love. And especially if you think about our children, I know so many people who are, as adults, dealing with their inner child trauma and overcompensating and trying to overcome the damage that was caused because their parents or their mother held on too tight because they tried to protect them from everything, from the world. That's the irony is that we can't protect them. We have to let them fly. And it was raised in the Baha'i faith. And there's this quote from Abdu'l-Baha who says, essentially, I wish you pain. I'm so happy that you have had sorrows. Strange it is that I love you, yet I'm so happy that you've had sorrows. And everything in life requires pain to grow. Everything requires that growth. And yet we love our children so much. We love our family, our friends so much. We love this world so much. It's just so hard for us to allow it to have the space it needs to grow, which is one of, I think, the great ironies of parenting. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to navigate. And listen, I want to talk about your book and your podcast. But before we get there, tell me a little bit about you, about your background and how you got to be the man that you are today. Well, first of all, I just want to say there is a boy inside of me right now who is so freaking out that I'm talking to Alyssa Milano. It's <laughs> <laughs> very sweet. And it's been so interesting to fall into this business and grow up and get a chance to meet people you admired as a kid. Because I grew up in Oregon, and you couldn't have been farther away. And what was also interesting, I don't know if you remember or if anybody knows this, but I was 18 or 19 years old, and I got my SAG card because I spent a week handing you a tray as an extra, as a background actor on your show almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago. Uncharmed? Uncharmed. Oh, my gosh. It was like some underworld episode. Every episode was an underworld episode. <laughs> Did you play a demon? I was like the right hand of a demon that you vanquished. We didn't have any scenes together. I would have freaked out if that was true. <laughs> but no. So it's really sweet to like be on a journey and have it not be the acting or that world that has brought us together, but actually have it be the thing that comes from inside, the thing that I think is more important, the reason that I actually ever became an actor. It's just one of these cool kind of moments where synergy in life happens. And here we are. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. But what a question, Alyssa. How did I become the man that I am? A lot of mistakes, trial and error, women, amazing women, lots of feedback, and my faith and a deep longing for truth. Tell me about your faith. You're a member of the Baha'i faith. Is that how you say it? The Baha'i faith, yeah. And, and I know one of your dear friends is also Baha'i, Jamie Jazz. Shout out to Jamie Jazz. He raves about you. Yeah. So I was raised in the Baha'i faith. Hi, my name is Rain Wilson, and here's an animated introduction to the Baha'i faith that I put together with the help of some friends. 
So I'm going to be trying to give you a general overview of the Baha'i faith. And it does bear noting that there are no clergy in the Baha'i faith. So I'm just a regular Baha'i, just like all of the other regular Baha'is on the planet. And I have my own perspective, my own way of seeing the world and interpreting the Baha'i holy writings. There are no rabbis or priests or gurus or mullahs in the Baha'i faith, no intermediaries between the common worshiper or devotee and the holy writings or God. Essentially, we believe in the unity of all religions. We're all different chapters in one book. We believe that the only difference between religions has been the time and the place which they came. We believe that we are all one. Baha'u'llah says we are the fruits of one tree and the leaves of one branch that we are all on this floating rock together and that it is up to us to recognize that we were created to unify. We are cells in a body. We are drops in an ocean. And that this world is existing with us and we cannot be separate from the world. And that everything has a purpose, that every spiritual law in the universe has a physical counterpart. And that we have to blend science and religion together and recognize that they are one. We have to be spending our days fighting for justice. Baha'u'llah says the most beloved thing on my side is justice. And I kind of grew up with this radical idea that like uh, Khalil Gibran says, our children are not our children. In some ways, this feeling that my life is not my life. My life is, I'm here to serve. And the great balance is figuring out what is ego and what is service? Where's purity? Because obviously this world is designed, we're, we're living in a capitalistic, materialistic society where our lower nature is oftentimes rewarded over our higher nature. And then the balance is figuring out, well, what does it look like to be a spiritual person today? What does it look like to, as Baha'u'llah says, have our deeds, not our words, be our adorning, right? To live a life where it's actually about what we do and not what we say. And it's a really, really interesting thing. And so it's a lot of mistakes. It's a lot of missteps. It's a lot of fumbling and trying to get up and questioning. And one of the fundamental principles of our faith is the independent investigation of truth, meaning that we cannot for the life of us, ever take truth from someone else. We don't listen to our parents, to our pastors. We must investigate truth for ourselves. It's the fundamental building block of faith. And it is in that investigation of truth that the seed of faith can embed itself in your heart and eventually grow to become a tree. So I'm a baby. I'm on this journey. I'm learning. I mess up every day. And that's one of the beautiful things about life is that we get to mess up and at the end of our days, look at our day and say, all right, what did we do today that would be pleasing to God? And then we ask for strength to do better. And then what are the things maybe that wouldn't be? And let's see if we can't correct those things tomorrow. And every day is a journey, little by little, day by day. I fall far short. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is there a church 
that you attend? No, there's no clergy. No clergy. Yeah, there's no clergy in the faith. It's an organized faith, but it's set up in such a way that every community has these clusters. And so long as you have nine Baha'is in a community, then you have technically like this organized group. And one of the things that's practiced is consultation. Even the election process in the Baha'i faith is one where you can't campaign. You don't want to try to get elected to this thing. You don't want to try to get elected to a governing body. It's quite the opposite. <laughs> in fact, Abdu'l-Baha says, even if we were to look at kings and politicians, that the people that we should be voting for are the people who say, no, I can't do this. This burden is too much to bear. The reluctant leaders, the servant leaders. So there's Baha'is all over the world. There are over 7 million Baha'is, and it's one of the most widespread religions on the planet. And at the end of the day, our goal is not to make anybody else a Baha'i, but to try with our deeds to eventually solve some of these problems with spirituality. It's so beautiful. I know from Jamie Jazz, knowing him since I was a teenager and knowing what he believes and his faith. And how do you marry your faith? with an industry that isn't cultivating the soulful side of whoever's in the industry. I think there are some incredibly spiritual, deepened people in this industry. And if you look at religion, if you look at the core of religion, if you look at the root, religion is beautiful. The people screw it up. Oh, for sure. Yes. So left to our own devices as human beings, as man, we just know how to mess up beautiful things. Look at our planet. This research was all about trying to understand when humans started changing the climate through the burning of fossil fuels. So it was really answering that question, when did global warming begin? And the answer that we found was quite surprising. It's really humans started altering the climate in around about the 1830s. I'm Nerali Abram. I'm a climate researcher. I work at the Research School of Earth Sciences at the Australian National University. And when I look at our industry, I think that so many of us got into this business because we want to make this world better. Do you really believe that? I think there's two things. I think that there's people that got into this business because they want to make this world better. And I think that there are people that are running from their trauma and they're trying to heal their trauma with the superficial band-aid that is fame and celebrity. And they're not exclusive. You can have both. I have friends who are like of equal amount of success achieved both dudes, both so completely different with how they view the privilege to be doing what they're doing. And my one friend, let's call him Bob, he doesn't mind going to a really dark place to get a performance because to him, that's really cathartic. And then my other friend is Steve, right? And Steve feels like he has worked so hard to heal his own trauma that every single time he has to emote something that is painful or hard for him, it chips away at the scab that's already healed, basically. And so it's so interesting how you can look at, and by the way, those are both actors. And I think there's obviously different, you know, I think directors are different than writers. I feel like in the best case scenario, it should be considered an art form. But also, the thing that makes it so complicated is that arts and entertainment are the second largest export of our country. Did you know that? I knew it was top five. I didn't know it was number two. Crazy. So what that means is you have the business aspect, the business component, and the capitalism. And all of these things are sort of intertwined now. When you look at Jeff Bezos and Amazon and that tech commerce 
and has a studio and can create films, there's this overlap that I don't think is a natural occurring thing. And so we're constantly trying to force it into it and not lose our own soul. I think you're right. I guess back to that original question, kind of where my faith is played in, we're told that every human must engage in some form of occupation or trade. This is a quote, I'm going to paraphrase. But that occupation or trade must be a form of service to humanity. So automatically, the directive is that we have to work. It's a part of the world, right? We have to work, but our work should also be a form of service. And specifically relating to the arts in our faith, there's a tremendous amount of writing, which is pretty mind-blowing, that talks about art as worship. And there's a quote, I won't give you the whole quote, but Baha'u'llah essentially says that, the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom if thou desirest me. And for me, I don't really consider myself an actor. I'm a filmmaker. I started a studio with the intention of creating films and art that can actually bring us together, help eradicate the isms of the world. And all of that stems back to this idea that I don't have to choose. I don't have to try to separate the spiritualism from the capitalism. Art is a way to shift reality and make impact beyond the cultural field. For example, at the height of the European migrant crisis, Joe Murphy and Joe Robertson of Good Chance Theatre, they heard about this refugee and migrant camps in northern France. They worked with these refugees from different countries, different circumstances, and created this communal cultural space. The need for expression, that is as important as food and shelter. It brought an international attention to it. That's bringing art and life together. The art, in this case, is genuine, authentic, collaborative. It is a piece of art, but at the same time, it has so many other possibilities. I think that what we need to start doing is stop making these false choices and start realizing that you can have them together. It's not a bad thing to be successful. It shouldn't be a bad thing to amass millions of dollars. The difference is, is your soul purified enough that... As you amass all of that money or wealth or fame or popularity or XXX, whatever it is, are you then going to be a fountain, continuously giving with that water? Or are you going to try to be a lake and suck yeah. it all up? What are you going to do with that platform you're given? And it all comes down to, as I say in my book, the hard work of hard work or spirituality or what is your belief that is greater than yourself? I always tell young actors or young filmmakers, like if you're in this business for yourself, <laughs> then you have to rethink your why. This is a service-oriented business. When we're acting, we're serving, literally. When we're producing, we're serving the art, we're serving the product. Why? So that somebody can have an experience. And we're living in an age where everybody is competing for attention, right? There's the attention economy. Time, I believe, is our most valuable resource. So what we're doing is we're creating art together. It costs lots and lots of money. We have hundreds of people that go into making it. And it's all so that somebody can give us their time, which is their most valuable resource, their attention, that commodity that everybody is competing for. And so that means that we got to purify ourselves as we're making the thing and make sure that we're giving somebody something that honors and values their time, which is why I always say we got to stop creating content that makes us feel better about being worse people and start creating content that inspires us and challenges us to be better to be the best versions of ourselves. Because those two hours when I direct a movie, I got to take care of that person. 
I got to take care of that time. I spent the last 10 years telling the stories of individuals who are dying of a chronic or terminal illness and putting their stories on screen to inspire people to live. If I'm going to make a movie that one of them watch, that two hours, that's a big chunk of their life. And we don't realize that all of us are dying. All of us are mortal. No one knows our expiration date. So our time actually matters. It's valuable, yet we spend so much of our time wasting it. Sorry for my No, rant, I agree. I just am self-reflecting on the hour and a half I spent on TikTok last night at three in the morning. <laughs> time I will never get back. But you know what? The same thing happens to me, Alyssa. No one is immune to it. No matter how spiritual you are, where our brains are not wired for random reward theory. But finding your why, I think, is really an important part of life. And I also believe that once you find your why, we'll always find the how. We'll always figure out the how when you find the why. I want to switch gears for a second, and I want to talk to you about your views on masculinity, which sounds really abrupt, and it's a super bad segue, but it's okay. It's my podcast. People have been with me for a while. They understand. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Exactly. Can you define masculinity for our listeners? No, I can't. Can you define <laughs> what it means to be a man? Yeah, I sure can. To be a human. It's the definition that is the problem, which is why my book is called Undefining My Masculinity. It's the definition of it. It's the creation of the box. There's the scripts that have been passed down from generation to generation that is causing us so much pain, that is killing men at alarming numbers, that is honestly, this is killing our planet. It is this rigid definition that hurts all of us. With Ryu growing up, he would wear dresses occasionally, you know, and want his nails painted. He was wearing uh, his hair up in sort of a little samurai ponytail. When he was on his way to school and they dropped me off at work. Um, and before I got out of the car, when I was getting out and hugs and kisses, and I said, hey, bud, I just want you to know I love your hair. I think it's so cool. But kids at school might not understand and they might say something about it. And he got this look like he just crestfallen, just done. And he took it out and he wouldn't wear it. But it was, for me, it was one of those things as a parent where I'm like, I'm cool with this. The world is not gonna be okay with this, so what do I do and how do I like protect him or shield him from to still do the thing he wants to do, but to understand. And yeah, that kind of like crushed his spirit that day. So I believe we have to undefine it. So that's why I always say like being a man is being a human. We need to make room for anybody who identifies as a man to be a man. Let's stop policing each other and saying, oh, it's this or this or this. What is it? It needs to evolve and change. We have to set ourselves free. I feel like the image of masculinity is, whether it's truth or not, masculinity needs like a better marketing campaign. We see <laughs> so many men who do bad things. And that's all the way at the top of industries and governments down to our neighbors and our relatives. And I'm wondering why you think the image of masculinity is such and that so many men have this image of masculinity. Where'd it come from? I think it's ancient and yet it changes all the time. We're looking at a fairly recent idea of masculinity right now. I think that's part of patriarchal systems is that the image that you're talking about, the PR campaign, if you will, is by men for men, created by men. It's a man's world. Everybody's just living in it. And the problem that men don't realize is that while in many ways the patriarchy especially does benefit men, I would say 
materially and oppresses pretty much everyone else, it also is extremely oppressive and is devastating to us emotionally and spiritually. So where this started, there's better people that you could have on your podcast to walk you through the history and the evolution of it. But again, just look at clothing as an example. I had the incredible Alok on our podcast and just realizing and finding out that it wasn't that long ago that men wore high heels. We invented the high heel. They were for horse riding and they were a symbol of strength at one point. And now, God forbid, a man wears a high heel. He is, you name it, rocks are basically thrown at him. So again, it evolves based on the times. At the end of the day, what matters to me the most and why I'm doing this work is because I believe that men are in crisis and that we're hurting. We're desperately hurting. And the problem is, is that we don't know what it even feels like to hurt because we've never even been asked how we feel. Mm. We don't know what it feels like to be in pain emotionally because the only pain we're allowed to have is physical and even that we're not allowed to dwell in. There's no space for us to be in pain or to be hurt because those are weak things. They're not really weak things, but we've said they're weak things. The patriarchy views them as weak. I also think that it's very obvious how the box of masculinity, how it hurts women, but we don't talk a lot about how it hurts men. Do you have any thoughts on specifically how men are hurt by the box of masculinity? Sure. I have lots. I speak to you as a hurt person today (laughs) who's been hurting and who's trying to heal from my hurt. At a very young age, bell hooks says that every man has to engage in what she calls a psychic act of self-mutilation, where we sever ourselves from our feelings. She calls it soul murder. How about that? Soul murder, as if there's anything more important than our soul. And yet as men at an early age, we must commit murder and numb ourselves and kill that part of ourselves in order for us to exist in this world. What we don't realize is that this box of rigidness, of toughness, of impermeability, of direction, of force, of power, all of these things are the only way that we can feel powerful or strong or live up to this definition is by cutting ourselves off from our hearts. And yet, as men, we're then forced to like be deep and have a connection to our heart, but that connection to our heart is only about bravery and courage. All of these things isolate us. We're told as men, one of the greatest myths of masculinity is that we have to do it alone. We can't ask for help. The biggest mistake I made in my life is not asking for help. I owned a golf course worth a ton of money, never asked one person for help. If I would have picked up the Yellow Pages, for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a book that used to have phone numbers in it, But if I picked up a Yellow Pages and looked at any golf course when I owned that golf course and said, hey, I got a golf course that's worth over $100 million, what should I do? To anybody that owned a golf course, they would have been happy to tell me that I probably should have sold it, not borrow against it in 2008. It's the sign of a real man that he made it on his own. What bullshit is that? Who in life does anything on their own? Nothing. It'd be like looking at a cell in our body and be like, that cell did it all on its own. No, like nothing in life works this way. We are all deeply, deeply connected. And the fact that as men were taught at such a young age that we have to essentially isolate ourselves in order to be men, then on top of that, we're not allowed to express feelings or emotion. We're not allowed to ask for help. We're not allowed to be close with girls unless we're trying to sleep with them. We're not allowed to do this or that. Oh God, we can't do that. Or then we're gay, right? Homophobia, sexism. It is all rooted in this 
identity crisis where we grow up and we don't have anywhere to turn. When we hurt ourselves, we're not allowed to express pain. And what happens when we can't express pain or hurt? It builds up and it builds up and builds up until it creates a fissure and explodes. And how does that explode? It explodes and the only acceptable feeling that we're allowed to have as men, which is rage. And you don't like to use the term toxic masculinity. Why is that? So it's kind of a hot button topic. And my feeling is this. I am not political in the sense of I'm not political partisan wise. That's actually part of my faith as an example. I don't campaign for folks. I don't say who I'm voting for. It's a deeply personal thing for me. Me too. Yeah, I don't do any of those things too. Yeah, none of it, Alyssa. None of it. And because at the end of the day, I believe all of these issues are spiritual in nature. And we've created a fissure and we've built walls between two opposing parties that will not listen to each other. And the masculinity has entered the political debate. And the ego and the power and all of the ugly things. And if you think about it, who controls politics? Mostly men, mostly white men. And who thinks they have the most to lose from gender equality? The people with privilege, white men. And as we know, for those with privilege, equality can feel like oppression. And when you enter the political debate and you have terms like toxic masculinity being used to enhance liberal agendas then what you end up doing is ostracizing an entire segment of the population who actually needs that message. And so for me, I don't want what I'm trying to say, my actions, the work that I'm doing, to be met with a wall because of a word that I use. And while words matter, language is all created. And so what I'm trying to do is simply say like, okay, men, let's talk. I'm a guy. I'm a dude. I was an athlete. I'll bro out with you in the weight room all you want. We'll talk about sports, whatever. Let's talk about this actual issue. And the second I noticed that I've used the term toxic masculinity, it's almost as if I can see the divide happen in real time. It's like the waters part and then suddenly folks that were open then look at me and think that I'm trying to push a liberal agenda on them and think that I'm using a word to try to take them over to what they view as the dark side because they have a hatred for this other side when in reality, as I said earlier, we're all the same. We're the fruits of one tree and the leaves of one branch. And so I don't use the word toxic masculinity because at the end of the day, I honestly believe there are no men that are exempt from this conversation. Liberals and conservatives, if you are a man, it's a conversation you need to have. I know plenty of liberals that are toxic. And that is something that is important to recognize is that you don't get a free pass to not do the work because of identity politics, if you will. So that's why I don't say toxic masculinity. I am not mad at people who say it. Go with me on this for a second. So being who you are, which I think I have a pretty good idea, and knowing that you have been given this gift of a platform and you are not someone that's going to campaign or get involved in politics, but let's say there is an issue, let's say childhood hunger or gun violence or something that you have been given the opportunity to make a real difference in that And it comes in 
as you can change this, but you have to go to D.C. and you have to meet with someone who I don't even have to tell you political affiliation, but here's his voting record. Let's say it's like Ted Cruz or something like that, where you can't deny that there's some ego stuff going on there, some power. So what do you do? It's a great question. That's why I said early on, there's a difference between politics and partisan politics, right? So everything is inherently political. Politics is personal. Exactly. And one of the ways I use my platform is I try to always talk about those issues. The difference is I think that we oftentimes get stuck in these echo chambers where we're only, if you will, preaching to the converted. That's why the algorithms on all these social media channels are so dangerous because you are only getting the side that you can digest that's palatable. The side that doesn't challenge your fragile ego. Exactly. Basically. Even Baha'is. There are plenty of Baha'is. One of my dear friends started an organization that I think you would love called the Tahare Justice Center, which is one of the largest nonprofit coalition of attorneys who are on the front line fighting for the rights of immigrant women and girls who are fleeing domestic violence and gender-based violence and genital mutilation, etc. And they are actively always campaigning to change policy. And that's different, right? Policy, while it may seem like it is intertwined with partisan politics, actually, I believe in many ways is separate because I think we need to be moving in a direction where it is about the outcome and not about the party. And that is where spirituality comes in. That's where justice comes in. That's where we have that strong sense of the personal is political, of understanding that, okay, what am I fighting for? Gun violence. Great. Well, I'm not going to go take on the NRA because guess what? The NRA is never going to change their mind. But there are a lot of people that I believe that live in places that may vote in line with the way that party votes, who are deeply compassionate, spiritual, sensitive people. But they've been completely written off because they've always voted for a certain party. And the more that we do that, the more that we're forgetting that we're all human beings, that we all are empathetic, compassionate, sensitive people. We all love, we all have dreams and hopes and parents, and we all suffer and we all feel pain. And if I can reach these people, then maybe I can change that law, I can change that world. And that's separate than just jumping on a bandwagon and talking about a person we're voting for or campaigning. And there are some deeply spiritual, fundamental truths missing from our current two-party system that will never change by someone being elected or someone else being elected. I have met with Ted Cruz on gun violence prevention, and it was a two-hour meeting, and I thought it was super important for us to go in. I went in with Ben Jackson, who's our producer of this podcast, and also Fred Guttenberg, who lost his daughter Jamie at 14 in the Parkland shooting. An unlikely meeting at the U.S. Capitol Tuesday between Senator Ted Cruz and actress and Me Too movement and now gun laws activist Alyssa Milano. It started with this tweet from Milano September 1st in which she asked, Can someone cite which passage of the Bible God states it is a God-given right to own a gun? Cruz replied, An excellent question worth considering carefully without the snark of Twitter. I thought it was important to take that meeting. It was hard for me because I got it from both sides. People were like, why are you meeting with the enemy? But also people from the right, like, why would he meet with you? You're just an actress. Stay in your lane. Oh, well, yeah, you got to love that. Shut up and dribble. Stay in your lane. But Alyssa, isn't that the problem? Yes, exactly. Isn't this whole idea of the other? And it happens. And unfortunately, it happens on both sides. And one of my favorite quotes from our faith is Baha'u'llah when he talks about what happens if two Baha'is argue about a principle or a teaching? He says, they're both wrong. 
and this idea that we have an enemy, but yet we're fighting for a common goal is antithetical to unity. And we have to start to see each other as, you don't have to like each other, but we have to love each other. But we just have to recognize the interconnectedness. Of all of us, of everything. Of everything. And I think that we have completely lost that. And in a way, it's bizarre because we are more connected than we've ever been before with the internet and social media. I always say social media is like time travel. Like we can be with people who are fleeing from Afghanistan and the Taliban at the same time that we're getting the score of the baseball game. It's really remarkable. But I don't know how we got to the point where we can't connect that all of this is connected, that the individuality is not a thing. Every once in a while, and this is such a silly thing, but I'm going to share it with you. But every once in a while, I will look at my coffee and I will specifically think there is someone across the globe that picked these coffee beans that ended up in my kitchen. And I just feel like if we did a little bit more of that... And it is a tale as old as time, right? It's that we're all under the same stars and we all look for the same moon. And yet it feels like we have just gotten. And I think a lot of it has to do with people who are just working way too hard. I think that to make a living in this country, but a lot of countries, you have to work too hard that you don't get to work on your soul, to work on your heart, to work on your spirituality. I want to talk about your book, Man Enough, and also you co-host a podcast of the same name. Will you tell us about both and really tell us what you're looking to achieve with those? Yeah. So I wrote Man Enough. It's a personal kind of meditation on masculinity. And I use my life and my story and my mistakes as an example. I never had men in my life model vulnerability. Imagine with me for a moment a world as peaceful and loving as you can. What do we think that world would say about what it means to be a real man? <laughs> when I was young, I heard the mighty tales of mighty warriors in their crusades, the superheroes saving the world in their uniforms and capes. I want to be a hero, Mom. I could fly up in the clouds. Hey, Dad, look what I could do. Doesn't it make you proud? They cheered me as I beat up the bad guys and put them all in jail. As long as I have my superpowers, I will never, ever fail. And then one day too soon, I learned I didn't have those superpowers. And that cape was just a piece of cloth. Man, I cried for hours. I've put on every mask, every suit of armor that you could put on as a man. I have hurt countless people. I've hurt myself. I've been deeply hurt. And this is a personal journey where I kind of take the mask off and just say, hey, I'm sharing this because I believe that there are hundreds of millions, if not billions of men that identify with these same issues. And one of my favorite compliments came from a brother who's a trans man, 50-year-old black trans man who said, for the first time in my life, I read your book and I felt seen. And that was the most important message I got because I couldn't think of someone farther away from my story than this person. And yet it showed me that the universal truth of suffering, the way that we treat men, the way that we put us men in a box and then train our men to then hurt, to acquire, to dominate, happens to everybody, regardless of gender. So it's pretty gnarly and vulnerable and honest. I talk about things like my struggle with 
porn and my first sexual experience, which honestly was assault, which I couldn't say those words in the book at the time because I hadn't truly healed enough to be able to. And I've been on the personal journey since then of recognizing, oh, it actually happened to me. And to just not honoring my feelings as Bell Hooks writes about and thinking that bravery is actually about physical risk and physical feats versus emotional. And so the whole book takes you on a journey from a lot of different viewpoints of what I've experienced in my life, even down to dating and marriage and success. You talked about work, right? And work addiction. And my hope is that people see themselves. And what I'm loving hearing right now is that, look, I'll be real. I knew that women would buy it before men. But I'm reading so many messages from women who have read this book and who, for the first time, feel some compassion for men. And that's what I want to say to like, not that they're listening to your podcast, Alyssa, but if they are, that's awesome. But guys who maybe are put off by that phrase, toxic masculinity, or guys that maybe feel like they're under attack, the feminist movement, it makes them feel like they're under attack. At the end of the day, this is about compassion and empathy and recognizing that all of us are enough but we're not taught to believe that growing up. We're taught that we have to become X in order to feel this. Masculinity is a performance that we must earn. And if you just think about that, if you think about the fact that masculinity can be taken from us, then you know it's not real. I can't take your femininity away, Alyssa. I could maybe say that you're in your masculine, but I can't take your femininity away. You can take my masculinity away from this fake word called emasculation. You can take it away from me because it's not real, because it's a performance. And if I spend my life trying to perform for approval to be seen as enough, then I'm never gonna be happy. I'm always going to be chasing a carrot into my grave. And at the end of the day, happiness comes from contentment and from recognizing that we are enough as we are. So that's the book. And the podcast is really just about expanding the conversation to have awesome people on, like yourself, maybe one day. And Anytime, anytime. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna hold you to it, Alyssa. But folks, to have deep conversations about this stuff, because it's one thing to read a book, it's another thing to listen to maybe somebody you admire or somebody you wouldn't think would go deep on this topic and talk about the things they've experienced in their life, because that's how we learn. It's so important to have conversations about things that are filled with nuance, because I think we're in a time when nuance just doesn't exist. Especially on the internet, because of context collapse. Exactly. And finally, my last question for you is what gives you hope? My children and all the children. Well, Justin Baldoni, you give me hope. Thank you so much for all you do and being a part of the podcast. Thank you for your bravery. Over the course of my career, I've had the great honor playing some of the greatest male role models ever represented on television. You might recognize me as male escort number one. <laughs> uh, photographer, date rapist, uh, shirtless date rapist from the award-winning Spring Break Shark Attack, uh, shirtless medical student, a shirtless steroid-using con man, and in my most well-known role as Raphael. Uh, uh, a brooding, reformed playboy who falls for, of all things, a virgin, and who's only occasionally shirtless. <laughs> Now, these roles don't represent the kind of man I am in my real life, but that's what I love about acting. I get to live inside characters very different than myself. But every time I got one of these roles, I was surprised, because most of the men I play ooze machismo, charisma and power. And when I look in the mirror, That's just not how I see myself.
It should be no secret by now that we live in a world which expects women to change to accommodate the failings of men. All the time you hear, well, if you don't want the attention, don't dress like that. Or she shouldn't have been at that party. Men, by and large, are the perpetrators of sexual harassment and discrimination, domestic abuse, and other expressions of patriarchy. It can be easy to forget that men are also victims of the same system. We expect men to change, but far too few of us are teaching men how to change in a way that validates their humanity and leads to positive outcomes. That's why people like Justin and the work they do are so important. Redefining what it means to be a man in healthy ways and showing men the path to define their own enlightened masculinity is such a critical part of creating a culture which is safe for all of us. Telling men to do better without showing them what better looks like is a fool's errand. So this is my challenge to men. Now you know there are tools out there. There is a path where men are leading the way for you to follow to a better version of you. Now you have to choose to do the work. Don't buy into the red pill pickup artist bullshit. You know that's not good. You know it hurts women, and ultimately it hurts everyone. Instead, look to Justin, or to Ted Bunch of A Call to Men, or to any of those men who want to help you set yourself free from a truly broken system. Be a man. Make the right choice. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.